Hello, folks, and welcome to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman. Once again, I am Michael Bradley. I am your host on this journey, uh, this voyage through the golden age of Superman. If you are hearing the show for the first time, I want to welcome you and thank you very much for joining me. And if you're returning after hearing one of the one or both of the previous episodes, then welcome back. This is the third episode of the show, and this time out we will be taking a look at the Superman story from Action Comics number 3, which turns out to thankfully be a slight improvement over the disappointing story in last issue. If everything goes according to plan, this episode should be a little bit shorter than the last two. Uh, first of all, there's not, there's just not a lot of meat to this issue. It's a pretty straightforward story. Uh, but also, the last two episodes were a little longer than I kind of had in mind. There was just more to cover, especially in the first episode, where I wanted to give a lot of background information about the show and, and the character of Superman. So, the cover to Action Comics number 3 was by Leo Omelia, who was also the artist to the cover of issue number 2. Also like that cover, this one does not feature Superman, Instead, it's just a stock action shot of a ship captain leading a charge on an island with the island's natives looming behind him. Uh, and the captain's ship can be seen sinking into the ocean in the distant background. Of note is the fact that Action Comics number 3 isn't the first place that this art was used. It was previously used on the ash can for Action Funnies in 1937. Ash cans were comics that were dummied up by publishers in order to secure copyrights and trademarks. They were usually hand-trimmed and stapled together, and only a few copies of each were made. In the golden age of comics, publishers produced a lot of these ash cans in order to secure the copyright on a title before another company did. Sometimes the ash cans became actual comics, and sometimes, like with Action Funnies, nothing became of the title. Detective Comics also dummied up an Action Comics ash can in 1937. The cover of that is a piece of horror artwork by Craig Flessel that shows a haggard-looking man in a robe brandishing a large, blood-soaked knife. The Action Comics ash can is unusual because it's a rare case where the, the artwork was never reused on an, on an actual comic cover or reused from an actual comic cover. And something else I found noteworthy about the Action Comics ash can is what was inside. The interior contained the six-page Speed Saunders story that had previously been published in Detective Comics number one, as well as ten of the thirteen pages of that issue's Slam Bradley story done by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. It's a complete coincidence that that story appeared in the Action Comics ash can, but I found that to be an interesting bit of comic book trivia given what Superman would go on to do for Action Comics. DC also produced a Superman Comics ash can in 1939, Superboy and Superwoman ash cans in 1942, and a Supergirl ash can in 1944. The Superman Comics ash can reprints the Superman image used on the cover of Action Comics number 7 as its cover. For the other three, since DC was only interested in securing the names legally and those characters hadn't been created yet, Unrelated artwork published around the time that those ash cans were, were put together was used on the cover of those just as placeholders. Though they produced a Superman comics ash can, I couldn't find any information about one simply titled Superman. I presume the fact that they were already publishing a character called Superman made it unnecessary to produce a Superman ash can, you know, because they already own the copyright on that name or title. 
but they went ahead and locked in Superman Comics to prevent another company from capitalizing on the success of Superman. I'm going to post links to the Grand Comic Book Database entries for all of these ash cans in the show notes at greatcrypton.com. They don't really add anything substantial to the history of Superman, but they are important in the overall history of comics. If anyone has any information about these ash cans other than what I've talked about, please, please send me an email to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. I'd love to share that with the listeners on a future episode. Okay, so... Digging into Action Comics number 3. This issue was released sometime around July 5th, 1938 and supports an August 1938 cover and the standard price of 10 cents. The Superman story in this issue is of course by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Jerry once again signing as Jerome Siegel. In reprints, the story has been titled alternatively Superman Battles Death Underground and the less exciting The Blakely Mind Disaster. The story begins with shocking news coming over the telegraph of a mine collapse that has left a lone miner, Stanislaw Kober, trapped. Clark Kent pleads with his editor to let him cover the story, and his editor agrees. A short while later, we find Superman racing towards Blakely Town at, quote, a terrific pace that not even the fastest auto or airplane could duplicate. When Superman arrives at the mine, he disguises himself as a miner, and we find there's been no word from the rescue crew for over ten minutes. Despite warnings from officials to, on the scene to stay clear, Kent approaches the shaft and pretends to slip, tumbling down into the pit. He lands at the bottom of the pit, unharmed by the fall, and immediately detects the air is filled with poison gas. Unaffected by the gas, he continues along the mine's bottom until he comes across the unconscious bodies of the rescue party. Superman, and I'm calling him Superman here because he's still wearing the miner's uniform, not his union suit, but... Superman picks up the miners, places them on the lift, pulls the signal cord, and sends the elevator upwards towards the surface. With the rescue workers saved, Superman charges deeper into the mine in search of the entrapped miner. Superman rounds the corner and he finds he is separated from the miner by a great wall of coal. Strangely, the coal is colored an orangish-brown shade. Um, I'm guessing that's due to the limited color palette that comics had in the Golden Age. It, you know, it's not a big deal. It doesn't affect the story any, but it's just kind of bizarre looking. Uh, so anyway, Superman is confronted by the large pile of coal, which is blocking his access to the miner. Big problem, right? No. Child's play. Superman begins to clear the pile with his bare hands, tossing gigantic boulders to and fro like they were mere pebbles. Within moments, Superman has freed the miner. Seeing the miner's injuries are serious, Superman quickly moves to get him to the surface where he can be taken to the hospital. Returning to the elevator, he finds the signal cord is no longer working. Even though, you know, it was just working five minutes ago. But again, the obstacle is mere child's play as Superman slings Cobra over his shoulder and speeds up the elevator cable, climbing hand over hand. He finally reaches the top and gets Cobra to safely, where the men above ground rush him to the hospital. This is a pretty nice sequence, uh, from Superman clearing away the rocks to pulling out the miner to climbing up the cable. It's pretty exciting, even though it's only a few panels. Uh, the biggest problem here is that we don't find out what happens to Superman before the next scene. I can accept him slipping in disguised as a miner. I mean, at least I can accept it as a far more plausible situation than sailing to some random country and joining that country's army unnoticed. 
But what isn't addressed is that the people working at the side of the mine saw Kent fall down the shaft, which the narration said would have killed an ordinary man. Then they saw him climbing back out of the shaft, hand over hand, carrying a full-grown man over his shoulder. And at this point, you'd think someone in authority would question who he is. But they don't. It's not near as big of a gap in logic as last issue, but still, it's kind of weird. So later, Kent calls the paper's editor and reports that Cobra was rescued by an unidentified miner and treated, but the doctors say his injuries will leave him crippled for life. The next day, Kent visits Cobra in the hospital. He tells him that he represents a powerful newspaper and wants to know if the collapse of the mine could have been prevented. Cobra explains that the workers have known the mine was unsafe for months, but that their boss dismissed their complaints, telling them that if they didn't like their job, they could quit. Cobra explains that the workers have known that the mine was unsafe for months, but that their boss dismissed their complaints, telling them if they didn't like their job, they could quit. But Cobra and the other miners had no choice but to keep working in order to support their families. Shortly, Kent visits Thornton Blakely, owner of the Blakely Town Mine, and asks if he has arranged for a pension for Cobra. Blakely tells him that he certainly has not, and that even though Cobra's carelessness is to blame for the accident, the company was generous enough to pay a reasonable amount of his hospital bills and just might offer him a retirement bonus of $50. And today that would be about $775 with inflation, which to Blakely's uh, credit is probably a lot more than he's paying these guys per week, but still, some guy, huh? Kent then inquires about improving the safety conditions of the mine. Blakely rebukes Kent, saying there are no safety issues in the mine, and even if there was, he's a businessman, not a humanitarian, then quickly shows Kent the door. That evening, Superman again disguises himself as a miner and pays a visit to Blakely's home, where he discovers Blakely hosting a party for several of his wealthy socialite friends. Superman looks through the window angrily, saying, I have half a notion to crash this party. To bits! when suddenly he's jumped by two security guards. Superman allows himself to be taken and is brought inside the house before Blakely. The guards tell Blakely that a few minutes alone with Superman, who they just see as a common miner, will have him giving a full confession, and Blakely demands to know what Superman has to say for himself. Superman replies that he just wanted to see a rich party with its music and beautiful ladies for himself. Blakely tells the guards to teach him a lesson then turn him loose, but suddenly changes his mind and gathers the attention of the partygoers and says the party's about to liven up. We then get a panel with a couple of guests talking amongst themselves, and they name-check an Elsa Maxwell. I had no idea who this was, so I did a bit of research, and apparently Elsa Maxwell was a gossip columnist and writer who, in the 1930s, gained popularity for hosting these extravagant parties for celebrities and royalty and other members of the social elite. Her parties were often noted for the games and other novelties that she used to keep the guests entertained. According to her Wikipedia entry, she is credited for introducing the use of scavenger hunts and treasure hunts as party games in the contemporary times. So, Blakely explains that since the miner is wanting to see how the other half lives, and the pampered mob at the party has nothing better to do, They'll compromise by having the miner lead them into the mine where they'll continue their party. Or, as Blakely puts it, make merry in the bowels of the earth. 
much to the delight of the crowd. Ah, rich people, what you gonna do? So the partygoers follow Superman to the mine, singing, shouting, and probably not just a wee bit sauced. And as they're riding down the elevator shaft, they're dancing and laughing and just having a high old time. And one guy says, Look, I brought sandwiches. <laughs> and there's always that guy at every party. And I have to wonder when he had time to make those. I mean, this little soiree in the mind seemed like a pretty spur-of-the-moment thing, you know? It just... No, no, wait, 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 we can't leave yet. I've got to make the sandwiches. <laughs> anyway, another guy chimes in. Forget the sandwiches. Who brought the flask? <laughs> so the partygoers continue their revelry, and one guy gets a bit handsy for seemingly no reason whatsoever. He says, better hold tight to that rail. On second thought, why not hold on to me? What has that rail got that I haven't got? And from the art, it looks like this is the sandwich guy. So if sandwiches are his pickup line, I, I, I can't imagine he gets many dates, but who am I to judge? So anyway, their exciting trip into the mine continues until they finally reach bottom and are completely and utterly disgusted by the conditions of the mine. They express disbelief that people actually work down there and regret that they went down there. Thankfully, Superman is on the case. Falling back as the pack of partygoers walks deeper into the mine, Superman begins knocking out some of the wooden support beams in the tunnel. Having accomplished his feat, he rejoins the pack moments before a horrible crash shakes the entire tunnel. The terrified partygoers race back up the tunnel only to discover the cave-in has left them trapped. They've been buried alive. One woman gets a case of the vapors and faints immediately, while Blakely gets all hysterical and claims he can't breathe and is suffocating. Superman, and remember, Superman is still disguised as a miner here, tells him he's not suffocating and that there's enough air to last 24 hours. Relieved, Blakely says that there's nothing to worry about because they'll be rescued in no time. And Superman replies, Maybe rescued in five minutes? Maybe never! And... Isn't that exactly what the same response he gave to Lois last issue when she asked when she would see him again? Maybe soon. Maybe never. I mean... Wow. <laughs> yeah, Blakely's a creep, but what did poor Lois do? So, <laughs> anyway, one of the partygoers, and it looks like Sandwich Guy, attacks Blakely, blaming him for getting them trapped in the mine. Like a coward, Blakely falls to his knees and screams for the man not to hit him. Other partygoers restrain the attacker and maybe give him a sandwich or something. Suddenly, Blakely gets an idea. The safety devices. The, the group is as good as saved. Or so they think. Blakely smashes the glass cover and pulls the emergency lever, only to discover it doesn't work. Superman tells him that like the mine's other safety devices, it's rusty and no good. Another of the partygoers attacks Blakely and says his cheapness and unwilling to equip the mine with proper safety precautions has left them doomed. Doomed! Blakely grabs some picks and shovels that had been left behind by the mine workers, hands a pick to Superman, and tells him to get busy. Superman replies, I'm content to die. If you want to live, you dig. Yikes. Don't mess with Superman. 
Uh, Blakely tells Superman that if they ever get out of the mine, his first act will be to fire him. But Superman doesn't back down and only replies with, If we get out. Man, do not mess with Superman. So the partygoers dig with the tools, hammering away at the barrier, trying desperately to free themselves. The task proves to be in vain, however, as the strenuous labors proves to be too much. They soon grow too winded and tired to go on, and Sandwich Guy says to think of the miners who have to hammer in the rocks 14 hours a day. Soon the partygoers give up entirely, resigning themselves to the fact that they're going to die. Blakely whines and says he wishes he had it to do all over again, that he never knew what the miners faced in their jobs. Eventually the group falls asleep, exhausted from their labors. While they sleep, since he knows Blakely has learned his lesson, Superman goes to work, tearing down the barrier with his bare hands, which allows the rescuers, who had been working on the other side, to enter the mine and save the partygoers. Several days later, Kent again pays a visit to Blakely's office, where Blakely tells him that his experience being trapped in the mine has given him a new understanding of the miner's plight and that he'll be making some changes. From here on out, his mine will be the safest in the country and his workers the best treated. Kent congratulates him on his new policy and thinks to himself that if, he, if the changes aren't permanent, Blakely can expect another visit from Superman. <sighs> well, not a bad story. Not a great story, but definitely better than last issue. I think the major problem here is that there's just a lack of costume Superman action. He only appears in costume in one panel for the whole story, and that just shows him running to the mine. I mean, yeah, we get some nice Superman-y... Superman-y? Superman-ish? Superman-esque? Anyway, Superman-type action with him rescuing Cobra in the first part of the issue, but really that's it. The rest of the issue is just your basic morality tale. I don't know. I really enjoyed this story more on my initial reread than I did when I sat down and really started going through it for the show. When I started looking at it then, the heavy-handedness of it really came out. I mean, corrupt businessman, Superman teaches him a lesson, yada yada yada. There's just not a lot there to talk about. You know, it's, it doesn't make for a bad story. It's just not, a, like I said at the beginning of the episode, there's just not a lot of meat to it. The art's a little better, a little bit. There's still some places where it just looks wonky, not a lot of detail, or like Schuster was rushing through it, but still it's a step up from last issue. Schuster again has some great facial expressions on the characters, especially Blakely, who, you know, throughout the story looks evil and smarmy and terrified and overjoyed and finally actually regretful at the end of the issue. And I'm going to scan some of these and put them in the show notes at greatcrypton.com because once more it shows that Schuster had a, a very uh, good handle on the comedic facial expressions. I will say, however, that this is very much a story of Superman as champion of the oppressed. You know, Superman sticking up for the little guy. And I like that we see Clark Kent being used to further the story in places where Superman couldn't, like with talking with Cobra in the hospital and later confronting Blakely. It just gives him something to do other than being the means by which, you know, Superman finds out about disasters and whatnot, and I really kind of like that. This also isn't the meek and mild uh, Clark Kent that we saw in the first issue. This, this Clark Kent here is more... I don't want to say aggressive, but assertive. 
When he's speaking with Blakely after visiting with Cobra in the hospital, and he asks Blakely about the uh, repairing the safety conditions in the mine, Schuster drew the artwork with Clark having a, a stern look on his face and kind of leaning in uh, towards Blakely, and it's it just shows a you know a more uh, stand up type of guy. He may be wearing Clark Kent's glasses and suit here, but he's very much the uh, attitude of Superman even if he's not, you know, throwing cars around and, and leaping over buildings. I did a bit of research on mining disasters and mining history around the time of this story because I was curious if this might have been a... if this story might have been inspired by any real-world events at the time. And I found that there were half a dozen or so mining disasters in the U.S. in 1938, including one in Grundy, Virginia in April of that year that left 45 people dead and several more injured. Researching a bit further, I found that there was a significant push around this time, especially in the UK, towards recognizing the detrimental effects mining has on the health of workers and striving to regulate the conditions and and the health care for the workers. I don't know for sure if any of that influenced Siegel when he was writing the story, but I kind of found it interesting nonetheless. As far as reprints go, we've got Superman Archives Volume 1, Superman Chronicles Volume 1, Famous First Edition C61, and wherever else you can find Superman Number 1 reprinted. I kind of feel like I'm repeating a lot of the same information here, and really I am, but only because these first four issues were originally reprinted in Superman Number 1, and that issue has seen quite a few reprints itself. Once we get past these first four issues of Action Comics, things will get a little more varied. Other features in this issue is pretty much the usual suspects as well. We've got Scoop Scanlon, Pep Morgan, Marco Polo, Tex Thompson, Chuck Dawson, and Zaytara. This issue also features a four-page humor strip called Shifty Simpson, done by Russell Cole under the pen name of Alger. The Zaytara story has an interesting footnote about it, because in the story... Zaytara's East Indian manservant, Tong, is shown reading an issue of Action Comics. He's holding the issue in such a way that you can't really see the artwork on the cover, just the book's title splashed across the top of the cover. But I found that to be a kind of an interesting bit of self-referencing or breaking the fourth wall, however, however you want to look at it. Very few of these non-Superman stories in early issues of Action Comics have been reprinted. And, you know, that's really unfortunate because I feel bad for some guy. You know, let's just say your favorite character happens to be Zaytara or Pet Morgan or whoever. I don't know. But if you want to read every Zaytara story, your only option is to track down each issue. And good luck finding a cheap copy of these early issues of Action Comics, even at a low grade. Thankfully, we're Superman fans. Well... I'm a Superman fan, and I assume you are too, or why are you listening to this? But in any event, um, reprints of Superman comics are pretty easy to find, and, you know, there's a lot of uh, material from DC's Golden Age that just has never seen the light of day since its original publication. Some of it might be better off left in the dark, and I'm sure a lot of it is better off left in the dark. But there's a lot of material out there that I'm sure would sell if DC would just pull it out and reprint it. I know I personally would love to see Siegel and Schuster's non-Superman work reprinted, especially the Slam Bradley and Dr. Occult stories. 
you know, I'm not saying a Radio Squad series would be a big seller, but surely Dr. Occult and Slam Bradley, who still make appearances today, you know, they're fairly well known by your average comics fan and not just some obscure character that no one's ever heard of. So, I don't know. I think those would sell pretty well. But, I don't know. Maybe someday. Speaking of Siegel & Schuster's other efforts, other books sporting an August 1938 cover date were More Fun Comics number 34, which had a Radio Squad story in it, Detective Comics number 18, with Spy and Slam Bradley features, and New Adventure Comics number 29 with a Federal Man feature. The Detective Comics issue has another great Craig Flessel cover, this one featuring Fu Manchu. Beyond that, what I noticed about this cover is a bit of text at the top indicating that the book is 64 pages, as well as a large bar in the lower right corner advertising, quote, the gripping and adventurous story of the mysterious Fu Manchu, as well as listing the other features in the book, including Slam Bradley, misspelled on the cover without the E, Speed Saunders, etc. These are all notable additions and changes to the cover because from here on out we're going to see the company promoting the contents of the books a bit more on the covers, um, rather than just having a generic piece of art under the title. It'll be slow going at first, but really as Superman's popularity starts to skyrocket and, and then with the uh, eventual debuts of Batman and other Golden Age DC heroes, DC realizes pretty quick why people are picking up the books and they start to promote that a little bit more on the covers. I think that just about does it for this episode. Before I go, I've got one more thing to mention. Back in the first episode of the show, I mentioned a second podcast that is going to be looking at the Golden Age Superman comics. When I recorded that, it hadn't been officially announced, but it has now, so I want to be sure to bring to your attention the Golden Age Superman podcast, which you can find at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. The show is hosted by John M. Wilson of Amazing Spider-Man Classics and Teenage Wasteland and Ultimate Spider-Man Podcasts. Those are both great shows that look at Spider-Man comics, and while I've not had a chance to listen to John's Golden Age Superman podcast, if you know the, the work he does on Amazing Spider-Man Classics and Teenage Wasteland is any indication... I'm sure it's going to be a great show. By the time you hear this, John will probably have three or four episodes out himself. So if you like what I'm doing here, be sure to check out John's show as well. And even if you don't like what I'm doing here, go give his a listen too because you never know. And once again, that um, the address for that is goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Okay, I think that about wraps it up for another episode. Uh, what did you think of this story? Did you hate it? Did you love it? Drop me an email at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. If you have any questions or comments, drop me an email. Maybe you think Sandwich Guy should make a comeback. Maybe a little Jeff Johns, Ethan Vanskyver, Sandwich Guy rebirth action. Thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. I'd love to get some feedback on the show, so whatever your thoughts are, be sure to send me an email. Be sure to hop on over to greatcrypton.com as well for show notes, images, the RSS feed. The show is also on iTunes if you'd rather subscribe that way. And be sure to visit the Superman Podcast Network at fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork for all sorts of other Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. 
So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. No parallel Hermes, he's at the sun by now! Our universe is doomed!